So we really built out a program that was designed to make sure everyone understood we want to treat people the right way. We want to do the right thing, not because the lawyers say to do it, but because it's the right thing to do and it's what we stand for. So we started talking to employees from their first day at orientation about what we stood for as a company. And it sounds sounds small, Seagal, but to give you an example, I would go to new employee orientation every week and talk for an hour. And people say, well, right, well you're, you're the general counsel. You don't have time to do that. So, oh, I said, I'm going to spend time on integrity issues no matter what. I'd rather spend an hour a week up front with people preventing a problem than spending probably twice as much time on the back end when problems arise. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead, a podcast that challenges the notion that the law lags behind. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Each week, I invite a lawyer who's making powerful changes through extraordinary leadership. In each episode, we'll travel through another lawyer's life, identify what they do best, and then devise how to apply these concepts to your own world. So let's get to it. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Our guest today is the former general counsel and chief ethics officer at Airbnb and author of the bestseller, Intentional Integrity, How Smart Companies Can Lead an Ethical Revolution. Using his legal, business, and leadership experiences, he now works with companies to help them develop strategies to drive integrity into their culture. Please welcome our next lawyer who leads, Robert Chestnut. Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Seagal. I'm not sure if you're aware, but I start every single episode with a little gratitude so we can also see a little slice of life from you. So if you can tell me, what is your favorite thing that happened so far today? I've seen uh, both of my kids this morning. You know, my daughter's graduated from college. My son's in high school. So, you know, if I get to see them over a cup of coffee or a bagel, uh, that's a good day. I love that. That's a wonderful way to start your day is to connect with everyone. Well, let's get into it. I'd love to get into your lawyer origin story. And specifically, I know that you spent 14 years with the U.S. Justice Department where you prosecuted bank robberies and kidnappings and espionage cases. What made you want to work in this area? That's a great question. I uh, was clerking for a federal judge out of law school, which seemed to be a great thing to do right out of school. And the judge just walked into chambers one day and dropped a Justice Department program flyer on the desk of my clerk and I. And I've always been the type that's a little impatient. I like to learn by doing instead of by watching. And the idea of going to a law firm where I, you know, there's a good chance I'd be stuck watching partners for years and years and doing my own deposition might be a big treat to look forward to after four or five years. That never really appealed to me. And the great thing about going to work for the Justice Department is that they don't have people who can carry briefcases. My first week there, somebody handed me a preliminary injunction and a plane ticket to St. Louis And I was out making mistakes right from the very beginning, which is very appealing to me. Where do you think that comes from? That's a really thoughtful question. I've never been asked that question before, Seagal. I really don't know where the impatience comes from. I I enjoy having an impact. And I think just the idea of watching other people, it's just never been in my personality. I think it's just been in, in my DNA. You know, I was washing dishes at age 13. I was working in retail at age 15. So I've just I've been a doer, and I think I, I've always just been very action oriented. So I, it's not surprising, I guess, that would carry over into my legal career. I would just prefer 
the action of going in and making my own mistakes instead of watching. Yeah, I love that. And I find that I also, when I was growing up, I was a waitress for a very long time. And I learned so many skills that really helped, I think, with various different positions that I held throughout my career. And I find that people that work in retail or work in the restaurant industry or in hospitality, they tend to have a doer mentality and are learning throughout the way. So I find that to be quite a trend, actually. So I know that you also prosecuted CIA employees during your time there, um, especially in a very high profile case. It was a little bit of being in the right place at the right time. You know, I was in charge of the major crimes unit in Northern Virginia U.S. Attorney's Office. And I remember I was given the role and literally a week after I took over the job, the head of the local FBI field office said he had a case he wanted to discuss with me and came in and laid out the Alder James case. The CIA being located actually in Northern Virginia meant that Northern Virginia was a place for the espionage world for those sorts of cases. And so it was just literally being in the right spot. And there were, I think, I ended up doing about a half a dozen espionage cases. Robert Hansen, I think he was recently in the news. He passed away in prison, was an FBI employee who was prosecuted for espionage. Harold Nicholson, a number of different ones. Very interesting. I, I never really grew up thinking I would be an espionage prosecutor, but you know, you, you, you show up every day and you never know what's going to happen. Yeah. What would you say is one of the biggest things that you learned from doing espionage cases? I think it, it requires a certain level of confidence because there are very few experienced espionage prosecutors. And so I think it's just a matter of you've got to be open to learning. The Justice Department back then had a very small office that basically supported federal prosecutors out in the field in espionage cases. When a case like that hits, they are a terrific resource, critical, because these sorts of cases there are a lot of interesting twists. There are some different laws that you typically wouldn't work with. So I think part of it was you really need to get used to the idea of learning and having a good sense of curiosity helps in these matters, but also just not being intimidated about it. I mean, look, I was not that old, I guess, at that time. I was probably in my 30s. And having a case that was in the front page of the newspaper all the time, uh, it was certainly a little bit scary. Because knowing yeah. if you screwed up, you were going to be on the front page of the newspaper. But I think it's just having the confidence um, to know that you can do it, be willing to listen to people who have been through it before, and having a strong sense of curiosity and learning about a new area. So I know then you moved to eBay and ultimately to Airbnb. And that seems like a really huge change from 14 years with the U.S. Justice Department. So can you just give us a little bit of an understanding of why you pivoted. Big change. I think part of it is you, know, you get to learn by doing and you have very interesting cases. And I was very lucky. But I also looked at it, you know, I'm in my 30s, putting people in jail. There's something about it that's not terribly satisfying. I mean, it needs to be done, but it can be a little negative. You're presiding over someone's life who's going to go to jail for the rest of their life. And there's a sadness to it. The first you know, several espionage cases were really exciting. You know, how many, how would I feel about it in 20 years? And same with bank robberies and drug dealers. I probably did over 50 bank robberies. The first 50 were, were great, but the next 250 might not be as exciting. I wanted to do something more positive. I wanted to have a, what I felt was more of a positive impact on the world. I love business. I started, you know, looking around and the problem was I would go to companies and they would say, wow, you're, 
you're a really good federal prosecutor, Rob. The problem is we don't prosecute people here. So it was, you know, where would I go? How would I make that transition? Because most people who are federal prosecutors become criminal defense attorneys. And I respect people who do it. It just wasn't the sort of thing that I thought I would enjoy. So it was a, I went on a journey really for a year and a half of trying to figure out how could I make a move? And I got really lucky, Seagal. There was a small little company in Northern Virginia at the time. And other prosecutors were calling me and needed records from this company. They wanted to prosecute this company. I'm like, what is this little company that I keep getting these calls about? The name of the company was AOL, America Online. And for folks who are in my age group, they'll remember America Online is the only way you could get onto the internet. And I had to learn what America Online was about just for my work as a prosecutor. So I started going online. And I start looking around and I'm thinking, wow, this looks pretty cool. And it was funny. I was uh, into photography and I thought, I wonder if I can get some camera equipment that's hard to find online. I stumbled on this little website called eBay and I, I bought several pieces of equipment. I sold a few pieces of equipment. Seagal, I thought it was the neatest thing I'd ever seen. I thought it was the best business model I had ever run across in my life. And finally, it dawned on me one night, I bet this website has problems with fraud, illegal items, and copyright violations, and all sorts of things. Maybe they could use somebody like me. So I look on their website. They don't have any jobs posted. So I send them an email to jobs at ebay.com. I send them my resume blind. I tell them why I think I might be able to help them. Little did I know, uh, a week before they got my resume, they got a letter from the Southern District of New York Federal Prosecutor's Office telling them they were under investigation for selling guns through the website. So they got my resume and said, we need somebody like him. So I was, wow. literally, I got a phone call the day after I sent the email. Two weeks later, I'm having dinner with Meg Whitman in California, and I didn't know who she was. And the company was very small, but they, they hired me. I was employee number 170 and took off from there. That is amazing. What timing. Incredible timing. But you know, I, I think, Seagal, going back to what we were talking about earlier, I, in life, I've really benefited by doing and also being curious. If I hadn't been curious about America Online or I hadn't been curious about a site like eBay, none of this would ever happen. I've been well served I think by looking around, being curious and trying new things in life. And that one it really changed my life. And you were there for quite a while and made a lot of impact while you were there. Can you share yeah. some of those impacts? Sure. I was there for about 10 years. The company was 170 when I started and 15,000 when I left. I remember my first week, the CEO, Meg, came by and said, all right, Rob, your first job is to decide what we can sell and what we can't sell. So wow. you get to make up all the rules for a global internet marketplace. Can you sell guns? Can you sell alcohol? Can you sell prescription meds? Can you sell replica watches? Can you do ticket scalping? She said, just figure out where the line is in terms of legality or the right thing to do. So I was uh, had strong encouragement right from the beginning to do the right thing, which was crucial for me. Later, the company said, we need to do something to stop fraud. They had no fraud infrastructure. So people were coming online and they were trying to sell a thousand plasma TV sets and they didn't have the TV. So they're selling cars that they didn't 
have where they were selling flood damage vehicles and the like. You know, Meg came back to me again and said, Rob, I want you to start the fraud unit. I said, I, you know, I'm, I'm a lawyer. And she said, I don't care. You'll figure it out. And so, you know, went off and got a lot of really smart people and we figured it out and built really the first trust and safety department for an online company. Terrific life experiences. It felt like I was having a positive impact on a lot of people around the world. And that's what I had been looking for back from when I was a federal prosecutor. That's an incredible story. And one thing I want to hone in on is this idea of figure it out, right? Because I think a lot of times when lawyers go in-house, right, there is very little resources. You're maybe one, two, three people. And there is a lot of, we just need you to figure this out. What would be some advice that you would give to lawyers that are going in-house that are being told to figure it out? Well, I mean, I think the first thing I would tell them is find a company where you believe in the mission. The old saying about if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life is so true. And the great thing about working in-house is that you're part of a team of people that's trying to solve a problem, that's doing something that's positive for the world. So if you feel like you're part of that team and you're showing up every day, it's a powerful experience. You should feel really motivated to figuring it out because the company needs you to figure it out in order to be successful in their mission. So uh, for me, you know, number one is find something that you believe in. And like for me with eBay, it was easy. I'm connecting millions of people around the world, around their passions. I'm helping enable small businesses open up global markets to sell. So easy to get really excited about that. Find a place that you're passionate about, because when you're passionate about it, you're going to love solving problems because you feel like it's, it's making a real difference. And go in, you know, you're a business person. A lot of times I think people come in-house from law firms and they're used to saying no, and they're used to marking up every little thing on a document. And I think you have to change your mentality a little bit to to think, now I'm a business person who happens to have legal training. And and I think if you you do those sorts of things, you're thinking about how to solve business problems with that legal background as a partner to the business, not someone that's in opposition to the business telling them what they can't do. Excellent advice. I want to make sure we wrap this part up because I do want to get into what you're doing today. I know you moved from eBay to Chegg and then ultimately to Airbnb. Can you just take us briefly through that journey? Sure. Going back to my impatience, (laughs) uh, the idea of doing the same thing for a long period of time isn't terribly appealing to me. Even at eBay, my first five years uh, were different. My last five years, I was starting and running the trust and safety department. Chegg for six years. And then Airbnb to me was just a a tremendous opportunity to be a part of a a world-class company that's, again, connecting people all around the world. I like changing it up every five or six years. I like the idea of taking on something where a third of the job scares you, at least, uh, where you don't feel like you know everything. That makes your job and your work a lot more interesting. So, you know, when the opportunity to go to Airbnb came up, I jumped at it. It was, in many ways, very much like eBay a marketplace that's connecting people, but they had a lot of challenges. And we had a terrific global legal team, a wonderful group of people and learning every day. So greatly enjoyed my experience at the company and I I love what they're doing in the world. I love this idea of making sure that your role has a third of the tasks that scare you. I think that's fascinating because it always helps you grow if you're a little bit uncomfortable. 
The idea of changing, I think, is important. It's been a theme really in my career. You know, I, I started doing civil work in the U.S. Justice Department. I moved over to criminal work and then did espionage and then jumped to, to eBay and the Internet. You can't be afraid to change things up. The idea of doing the same thing for a long career, to me, it just isn't very appealing. But being open to new things and being open to doing different things in your career, I think actually ultimately helps your career and certainly makes it a lot more interesting. That's very true. And I think especially, at least from my experience, you're told you go to college, you pick a major, and that's like your life for the rest of your life. Um, but that's that doesn't have to be a reality. And in fact, you can find lots of happiness and have a more fulfilling career if you do pivot and you do change. It doesn't have to be the same thing forever. So I, I really think that you're a wonderful example of that. For me, I think it's about every five years. So I'm I'm about two and a half years into my next five year stint. So I don't know what I'll be doing two and a half years from now. But you know, I I also trust that you keep a smile on your face. You love what you do, and you do it well. More opportunities always seem to come your way. So trusting that. Yes, yes. So let's focus a little bit on your time at Airbnb because this really informs your book. I know that while you were at Airbnb. You started an employee program called Integrity Belongs Here. Can you speak a little bit to that? Sure. While I was at Airbnb, I really noticed, I think, a change, a real shift in the world when it came to business. In the old days, everybody expected businesses just to make a profit, just make money. That's all that really mattered. And a lot of the smaller issues, quote unquote, smaller issues would get swept under the rug, bad behavior and the negative problems that would come up with the business. And starting, I think, with the Me Too movement, Uber really made an impression on me, all the problems that they were having, because Uber was literally just down the street from us and was very similar to us in terms of their trajectory, their arc, their age as a company. And when I saw their problems and saw the Me Too movement and saw that the world was expecting more of companies, they were expecting companies now not just to make money, but to have values that were aligned with the customer's values and have values aligned with the employee's values. And so now it's not enough just to make money. And if your behavior is not good, if people are treated poorly inside the company, or if your company is creating, it's doing business with people that are mistreating others, if you're mistreating your employees and the like, you get called to task. The Integrity used to be doing the right thing even when no one's watching. Today, everybody's watching everything. There aren't secrets. And as a general counsel, I started thinking, I don't want to sit and wait for a bomb to drop. I don't want to wait for the problem. I like to think that we can be proactive and prevent problems. So the question that I sat down with Brian Chesky, you know, the founder of Airbnb, had to have a discussion about one day was, how do you drive integrity into the culture of a company? Because I, I deeply believe that companies that operate with integrity are actually going to be more successful financially. It was funny, somebody over the over this past weekend, a young man from Jamaica, I was talking to him, he was describing what he does and what his work in the United States and doesn't go out at night, uh, stays away from, from drugs and other issues. And I said, how'd you get to be so smart? And he looked at me and said, Rob, trouble is expensive. And I thought that captured it really well. Trouble's expensive. It is. So if you can figure out ways to prevent it, I think you're protecting your brand. And you're also, I think, building a company where employees feel on a personal level really aligned and they stay longer, they work harder. Customers are now more values driven than ever. So 
if you build a place you're proud of, build a place that stands for the right things, I think that's what the world is looking for from companies today. That's what the most admired companies do. And I think those are the companies that in the long run now are going to be successful. So the question, of course, is how you do it. Brian looking at it and saying, how do you do it? And I said, well, gosh, I don't know. Let's see. Uh, there's a code of ethics. But the code of ethics, typically, that's something your law firm writes up and sends over and puts your name on top. And then you email it out to everybody and tell them to check a box. That doesn't really change things. And you've got your compliance posters with four-point font in the break rooms that nobody reads. You've got a whistleblower hotline buried several links deep in your corporate intranet that doesn't get much use. What do you really do? The one thing I loved about Brian is Brian didn't go to business school. Brian Chesky, the founder at Airbnb, he went to design school. His approach was really about start with the end in mind and don't be afraid to do something that has not been done before. Take a different approach. And so that's what we did. We thought about, well, if we really want to make an impression and drive it into the culture, you wouldn't, you, you know, you need a code of ethics and you need a hotline for sure, but that's compliance. Compliance really comes from this notion of someone's forcing you to do it. The law is forcing you to do it. What about integrity? Integrity is doing something because it's the right thing to do. And that's inspiring. So we really built out a program that was designed to make sure everyone understood we want to treat people the right way. We want to do the right thing, not because the lawyers say to do it, but because it's the right thing to do and it's what we stand for. So we, we started talking to employees from their first day at orientation about what we stood for as a company. And it sounds, sounds small, Seagal, but to give you an example, I would go to new employee orientation every week and talk for an hour. And people say, oh, you're the general counsel. You don't have time to do that. So, oh, I said, I'm going to spend time on integrity issues no matter what. I'd rather spend an hour a week up front with people preventing a problem than spending probably twice as much time on the back end when problems arise. Trouble is expensive. Trouble is expensive. So I went down and I, I remember I would talk a little bit about sexual harassment and how at our company, the executive team committed to each other that they would have no romantic relationship of any kind with any employee. Just to put it on the table, we're not doing it. And managers put on the table, could not do it with anyone in their chain of command. At one of the sessions, a woman came up to me afterwards, literally tears on her cheek. And I was thinking, oh no, what did I do? What did I say? She looks at me, she says, Rob, I was working at, and it was another big tech company in Silicon Valley. She said, my boss kept propositioning me and wouldn't stop. And she said, I knew if I reported it, they wouldn't do anything. So I had to leave. This is my first week at my new job. She said, you have no idea what it means to me to have the general counsel walk into the room and talk about these sort of things. She said, I have never heard at any company, any leader talking about this sort of thing before. And you have no idea what it means. And it, it's true. You don't hear this sort of thing enough about a company that wants to operate the right way. Uh, but when you do, it makes an impression. Yes. So we, we talk about it in orientation. We do little videos, not the one hour long compliance videos that everybody dreads. We started doing three minute videos that we produced ourselves on an iPhone with a little bit of humor in it. And we didn't force anybody to watch it. We just picked a different ethics topic every month. And by the end of the first six months, over half the company was voluntarily watching an ethics video every month. Employees were writing in asking how they could appear in the videos. And other members of the executive team 
would come up to me and say, Rob, I want to be in the video. Can I be in one of these things? They actually became part of the culture of the company. Employees knew me more as the guy in the videos than as the general counsel. So it's that kind of thing that sends a message that we're not doing it because we have to do it. We're doing it because we believe in it. And it's leaders having the courage to actually spend a little bit of time talking about doing the right thing. And I think it goes a long way. I'll tell you one other story. We had these Yeti water bottles, really nice metal water bottles. They had this powder coating. We put the Airbnb logo on it and the phrase integrity belongs here. We had a, a bunch of them made up and we would give them out to people who would ask good questions about ethics issues or conflicts issues. The idea actually, which it seems odd, but no one ever gets rewarded for asking integrity questions. It's like, why shouldn't we? So we started giving out these water bottles. So anyway, one day, I'm at my stand-up desk. I have a stand-up desk in a big open area. Guy walks up to me. He's a mid-level manager in the IT department. And he introduces himself. And I said, hey, nice to meet you. Thanks for stopping by. And he said, Rob, I couldn't help but notice. But a little while ago, when you left your desk, you left your computer screen on. And I was like, oh, okay. I'm being called out for security violation. I'll be honest, Seagal. The first thing that came to my mind was, oh, come on, give me a break. I was gone for five minutes. I went to get an iced tea, go to the restroom. There's nothing sensitive on my screen. We're in a building with badges, and security guards. Come on. But fortunately, I didn't say the first thing that came to my mind. Because the second thing that came to my mind was this. How great is it to work at a company where a mid-level manager feels comfortable walking up to the general counsel and calling him out for something? How great is that? So I looked at him and I said, you know what? You're absolutely right. How embarrassing. I said, look, I screwed up. And I said, of all people in the company who should be good at this, it ought to be me. And I said, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming over and telling me this. Thank you. And as he walked away, I thought, you know what? He should get an Integrity Yeti. We called him Integrity Yeti, the Yeti water bottle. Yeah. But instead of just handing him one on the spot, I waited until the next large meeting at the company. And I grabbed the microphone and I told everybody the story of my security violation. And then I said, how grateful I am that one particular individual had the courage to come over and tell me about it. But things like that, where you talk openly in front of everyone as a leader, and you're not afraid to say, I screwed up. It sent a message not only to him, but it sent a message to everybody that, you know what? Speaking up, asking a question, if you see something wrong, you're not going to get punished for it here. You're actually going to get rewarded. He sent me an email two years later, Seagal, saying that that moment was his proudest moment in working at the company for six years. That's such a wonderful story because you're right. We don't reward people for asking tough questions. In fact, it's not easy to ask tough questions, especially in a situation where someone is up the chain. But I think rewarding people helps the company, right? Because then people feel more empowered to step up to help and protect the company. Also, integrity, like many of these higher level concepts of ethics, once you start moving in that gray area where it's like, oh, well, it was only five minutes on my computer, only 10 minutes on my computer, only 20 minutes, there has to be a line, right, in order to maintain integrity. And I think rewarding people so that they can challenge those things actually maintains that high level of integrity at the same time. It's that gray area stuff. The integrity program at Airbnb was so popular. People really took to it. I ended up writing a book about it. And when I originally got talked into writing a book, I thought, you know, you write a book because you figured something out and you're really smart. What I really learned was that writing a book itself is a learning journey. 
And one of the things I did was I went to, I reached out to a behavioral psychologist by the name of Dan Ariely at Duke University. And Dan's an expert on studying dishonesty and cheating and lying. And so I actually went to him to learn a little bit about the psychology of it and realized that we had sort of accidentally stumbled upon and done a few things that were actually scientifically right in the program, although we had no idea at the time. But one of the things he taught me is that, you know, a real danger in companies around this sort of stuff is this notion of fudging. The idea that there's gray area, nobody says anything, it's a little uncomfortable, and you get a little loose with certain practices. And early, it doesn't matter. But once you get used to it, mentally, it's easier to go one step further, one step further, one step further. And then, you know, you end up doing something that's embarrassing. It can cost you a career and damage a brand. Yes, absolutely. Anything else in your book that you'd like to share with our listeners, things that they can take away? Well, I mean, I think the reason I wrote the book was to have impact. I never thought about writing a book. Again, the idea of doing something different, my my wife talked me into it, simply on the idea that it was really such, it was so well received at Airbnb. Do you want to have an impact at one company or do you want to have an impact at maybe thousands of companies? I'm like, okay, I'll do it. The book is People tell me all the time that it's, wow, I thought this was going to be boring. It was ethics. It's actually fun because it's uh, very practical, real life stuff. The the book is really designed for a company that wants to intentionally drive integrity into its culture. And these are practical things that, by the way, they don't cost much money. I think the $30 water bottle was one of the most expensive things that, that we did. Integrity is really more about being willing to speak up, spend five minutes at a meeting every now and then talking about what it means to do the right thing in that particular context. But it goes a long way. I think that's the short version, but the book's got a lot of great stories and a lot of very practical things companies can do. It doesn't matter what type of business they're in. Wonderful. All right, let's get into our rapid fire questions. You ready? I'm ready. What does leadership in law mean to you? So I think about when you say leadership in law, I think about having a team. So I think it's about genuinely caring about people on your team and being willing to be there for them, to give them opportunities, teach them, even if that means they may even leave your company for a bigger opportunity. That's fine. That's what it's about. What is something that other lawyers seem to misunderstand about the work that you do? The the biggest misunderstanding is that this ethics stuff is nice, Rob. This operating with integrity is really nice, but we're here to run a company. This is business right? Like somehow the two are mutually exclusive. And I think what they misunderstand is that in today's world, I don't think you can be a great company if you don't think about these things. I think that's what the world expects of companies today. So what I'm actually talking about isn't about doing good just because it's a good thing to do or the right thing to do. I'm talking about doing good also because it's financially the smart thing to do. Trouble's expensive. Trouble is expensive. I'm going to be keeping that in my mind for many, many months to come. If there was one thing you could change about the legal industry, what would it be? I think it's so focused on the rigidity of rules and compliance that there's a failure to focus on something a little bigger and deeper, which I think is integrity. A lot of companies have a compliance program. They could probably use an integrity program because I think an integrity program actually makes the compliance program better. I think sometimes lawyers paint between the lines a little bit too much. And I think the idea of just stopping at a compliance program paints within the lines. And I think lawyers 
um, could really benefit. Don't be afraid to look at something from a different perspective. Start with what you want the end to be first. And you might find that doing something in a very different way actually makes a lot of sense. What is a piece of practical advice you can give to our listeners? These are leaders and future leaders in law. We probably covered this, and that is don't be afraid to change things up. Be curious. So many interesting opportunities may come your way if you're open to going in a completely different direction. Don't feel like you're stuck in one area. In fact, don't get stuck in one area. Final question. What do you do for self-care? I'm much better at this now uh, that that I've got a little more time as an author. I love spending time with my kids and I I get to do more of that now. I get to exercise to me as a big part of self-care. Of course, in in a typical sort of business way, I've got a spreadsheet with what my goal, my targets are for each week of exercise, but that keeps me going. Absolutely. I love that you track your progress. When I first got into the business world, I used to think that businesses measured what they did. What I came to learn is that businesses do what they measure. If you measure something, you are far more likely to focus on it and do it well. That should apply in your personal life as well. So the fact that I measure it and hold myself to it means I'm a lot more likely to do it. Ah, I love that. That's excellent. Rob, I want to thank you so much for being on the show. If anyone wanted to reach out, connect with you, what's the best way they can do that? Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I do a number of LinkedIn posts on the issue of business integrity. I've also got a website, www.intentionalintegrity.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Rob, for being on the show. This was awesome. I appreciate you having me. Thank you. Thank you, leaders and future leaders, for listening today. We have a new guest every week, so don't forget to join us next week. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe or follow us anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow at Lawyers Who Lead on social. Let's celebrate and continue to build a community of leaders in law together. Lawyers Who Lead is made possible by Lawline, the leading online platform for lawyers who want engaging, relevant CLE and professional growth content. For over 20 years, Lawline has helped hundreds of thousands of attorneys level up by providing award-winning courses in hard-to-find areas and high-demand fields. They have so many courses to choose from that are actually really interesting to listen to and watch. That's why Lawline's rated the highest in the industry, with almost five stars and over 1,000 verified reviews on Trustpilot. Lawyers who lead listeners get $100 off Lawline's unlimited annual subscription, which means you can take as many courses as you want for a really good price. Just visit lawline.com slash podcast to get the special offer. Check out Lawline for the best content for leaders and future leaders in legal.